Welcome to the Networking with Plants in the Anthropocene podcast. This episode, we're joined with the wonderful Dr. Kathleen Gutierrez, who also goes by Kat. Welcome, Kat. Thank you for having me. Oh, I'm so thrilled that you were able to join us. I can't wait to hear more about your work. Um, I'll start off with a simple question, but it's one that many of our interviewees find really challenging. Um, what is your favorite plant and why? Oh, I, I get asked this, I have to admit, and I usually have to pull some answer down randomly from the skies or from the ground um, to answer that properly. I think it changes from moment to moment. So usually it's a plant that I've been thinking about a lot in my own work, or sometimes it's a plant that I'm living around in my daily life. I would have to say at the moment, I am really pretty enamored by this plant that I have in my office, which is actually a, a hybrid plant. It's well, not quite hybrid, but it's a, it's a grafted, two grafted cacti or cactuses. So they're, you know, it's sort of a different head versus the different body of the plant that are kind of fused together. It was given to me as a gift by one of my mentors at my institution um, to honor um, a book project that I've been working on for a while. And so I'd have to say it's this plant that looks a little freakish to some, um, a very like a cool hybrid to others. And, you know, it's sitting right by me at my desk. And, you know, I'm, I'm really, really enjoying it. That's wonderful. And for listeners, it does. It's very interesting. It's very shiny. And the top does it does indeed look like a hybrid. The top is kind of rounded and fan like almost and the bottom looks more standard kind of straight cacti like so. yes absolutely thank you for describing that the the body almost looks like kind of the stalk that you would imagine that brussels sprouts grow off of kind of like a, bre a thick brassica stalk and yes absolutely it's like that fan kind of head yeah how cool um what is your either your personal or your family or community history with plants have you always been interested in plants or is it something that kind of clicked for you or came to you later in life? I think the more that I reflect on my journey to what I'm studying today, I recognize that my exposure to plants started very young. I had a very urban uh, youth. I grew up in Los Angeles, right by downtown LA. I mean, it's as urban as you can probably get. And the extent of the flora around me really pales in comparison to even where I live now, which is in Santa Cruz, California but most certainly to other places I've been that are just lush with, with flora. At the same time though, it always seemed that even in the apartment that I grew up in, my parents made a place for plants. And so, you know, we always had plotted plants in every room of the home that I grew up in. These large ficuses to, you know, monsteras, to, you know, things that would maybe be growing even in the aquarium that we'd have when I was growing up. And so they were always around. And I think it's always been um, a source of comfort and um, aesthetic beauty, of course, to, to know and to have in, the, in, one, in my home. At the same time, I do think that plants have sort of always been somewhere in the water with my own family's interests. Uh, my father was a botanist himself in the Philippines. He studied uh, the Philippine mahogany, um, which is actually more formally known as the Dipterocarpaceae. Um, I have siblings that committed themselves to working on the environment at some points in their careers, one on soil, one doing kind of more environmentalist efforts. 
And so something, you know, in the water again, really kind of all had us really tantalized, I think, by plant life. And thankfully, you know, in the career that I ended up charting, I was able to find a place to be able to write about them, too. Your family gatherings must be really rich <laughs> in talking about different parts of ecosystems. You could say that. <laughs> <laughs> How do you understand your work with plants? Um, what do you do and what do they do? Wow, that's a really great question. And one that I've, I also, again, ponder to myself normally when I think about what I do with and on plants. Um, because in some ways, it's it's more than just sort of writing histories relating to how people have studied plants in the past. I'm personally a history of a historian of botany in the Philippines and and broader Southeast Asia. And so, you know, I've spent a kind of quite a bit of time thinking about how others have studied plant life or engaged with plant life in, to some extent. But honestly, I don't think I could ask these questions without engaging with plant life in some way in a very material sense with my own hands, you know, to be in nature, to be in natured spaces, thinking about how plants grow, what they do, how they can kind of transform um, life and how I become impacted by their very existence, um, how they change the nature of my own questions and inquiries. I think, uh, you know, one's investigation, especially as a historian, becomes only better when you sort of engage in the actions that you're hopefully investigating, um, especially in, for instance, in the history of science, um, granted that they're not violent, you know, or terribly extractive. And so for me, you know, plants have been really important writing partners, so to speak, in the sense that they really sort of encourage a very different sense of knowing um, more than, you know, I know my own words can convey and more than, you know, a simple sort of intellectualizing can do. That's beautiful. Um, how would you explain the goal of your work to someone who's unfamiliar with the Academy um, or maybe even in a different part of the Academy? Our listeners how are you know we have a wide range of listeners some of us are in the academy um some of us are plant practitioners some are artists some are just people who love plants um and so what are some of the goals do you think of your work sure for a long time you know and i think this is when i started graduate school i really just became fascinated by the myriad ways that people lay claim to plant life and I mean this, you know, politically, socially, through national projects, for instance. And so, you know, normally I would say, well, you know, we have state flowers, you know, nations have national flowers. Um, there are plants that get, uh, uh, that become part of intellectual property patents, right? There are those that get wielded for particular politics, you know, whether that's on flags or on banners, you know, we have names for them. We use them as metaphors for many, many things. And so I've found that to be a really kind of fascinating thing to unpack and to understand. Why is it that humans lay claim to plants when, frankly, plants don't follow those politics that we might allot to them? And so that has really kind of pushed my thinking along over the course of my young career, first thinking about colonial botany in the Philippines and the differences 
and similarities shared between Spanish colonial botany and U.S. colonial botany in the Philippines. Uh, both regimes had a long history of colonization in the archipelago. Moving into today or into more recent decades, when I've been thinking about the Cold War period and how plants sort of played a really important role with scientific development in the Philippines, but I would even argue in a lot of Southeast Asia and the decolonizing world. And so they've taken on sort of this instrumental role historically, right, for politics, for intellectual, for politicians, for intellectuals, for cultural workers even. But I would even say now moving into kind of this other stage of my own research and thinking more about how plants are really kind of world making in historical moments too. And so they're not only sort of these instruments for whatever means, but they're also kind of shaping the very questions and reasons by which people are acting and operating, um, whether it's by their growing habits, their morphologies, um, where they span, you know, geographically. I actually think that these sorts of things have to be taken seriously and that in some ways, these, these fantastic historical moments that I like to find and write about are many ways shaped by the very plants that are participating in them. And so that's been really fun for me to kind of think through lately as well. That's so fascinating. Um, do you have an example um, that you've encountered in your research or a few examples um, that could help illustrate that world making for um, the audience? Sure, sure. I mean, a couple come to mind. Um, one that I have written about in relation to a flower that was discovered among the Tassadai people in the Southern Philippines. So the Tassadai were sort of a fabled Stone Age people that had been discovered in the early 1970s during the Marcos dictatorship of the Philippines. This has been a really well-studied dictatorship. Um, the current president of the Philippines is actually the son of Marcos Sr. today. So um, this is a, a very storied family that we know of in the Philippines. The Tassadai had been discovered you know, during this dictatorship um, and many different scientists were sent to the Southern Philippines to investigate this people, this Stone Age people. And uh, among them were botanists, including my own dad, who discovered um, in his investigation of the ethnobotany of the Tassadai, this particular toad lily. Um, it was along a river that he discovered it. And apparently it had never been described in the Philippines. So allegedly never discovered before, but had some uses among the Tassadai. And he named the flower after the first lady, Imelda Marcos. And so, you know, the story that sort of I look at is just how, you know, um, politics and science and even pop culture kind of get involved in the discovery of this purportedly new flower that's named and heralded after kind of the beauty of Imelda Marcos. Um, you know, again, people are scrambling to kind of put this flower on stamps, um, to write about it, you know, in, in newspapers. Um, only eventually for the Tassadai to be discovered to be a hoax in the 1980s. And so what I've sort of tracked is that, you know, as the Tassadai sort of fall out of the limelight because they turn out to be kind of paid farmers who were sort of staged to look like Stone Age cave people at the time, in the 1970s, also within the mix is sort of this flower that also falls out of repute. But the interesting thing about this flower is that it hadn't actually been quote unquote new. Um, its growing range had only been around to, to Formosa or Taiwan. And so this plant had been observed before, thought to have only grown in Taiwan, but found in the Southern Philippines. And so it conceivably would have jumped an entire body of water and many, many islands to get to this 
really remote location in the southern Philippines along a river's edge, which then makes me kind of question and wonder, you know, what kind of transpired in this moment, this hoax, right? And how this plant that seems to just have been out of place for quite for, for a second, um, how this plant kind of helped perhaps contrive that moment because of, you know, it's acting a little bit strange than when we've been anticipated. And it just also asks, begs other questions about how it would have gotten there. It could have been through trade routes. It could have been seed dispersal. Who knows? But it, we know that it hadn't been discovered anywhere else in the archipelago to that point. So it's that kind of, you know, instance. Another instance during the Cold War Philippines, um, what folks don't really know is that botanists in the Philippines um, during the Cold War had actually been hired by um, U.S. military to survey a flora of a particular island in the Philippines to then anticipate what kind of flora would be growing in Vietnam for the development of dioxins like Agent Orange to be more effectively used. And so, again, if, if the U.S. military has a sense of what a tropical climate's flora might look like in the Philippines, it could then have a sense of how to destroy that flora in more time with Vietnam during the Second Indochina War. Um, on that expedition, um, one of the botanists discovered a plant, a, a new species of tree of, of dipterocarp, the Hopea samarensis. And so, you know, the way I see it in this kind of floral survey, there is a kind of world making at play in the presumption of a shared geography between sort of a Vietnam landscape versus a Philippines landscape. And the fact that there may be certain flora that can be mapped on to these two different landscapes and that are similar, almost participate in the world making for the creation of a dioxin. One of the things that um, is interesting to a lot of folks in the networking with plants group um, is respect and what it means to have respect for plants. Um, and it applies to a lot of people's work, but not necessarily everyone's work. I was wondering if through your research um, and your experiences with plants, if you have a sense of what having respect for plants means to you or how you've seen it approached um, historically? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. I can probably answer how I've seen it historically first and then if that'll help me reflect a little bit on my own, how I now see it for my own work. I would have to say that, you know, by and large, the historical actors I've come across all to me read like huge plant nerds, you know? Um, in a charming way. And, and in some ways, you know, of course, not absent of the, the fraught politics of the time in which these people studied plants or worked with plants. And so I look at Spanish colonial botanists, U.S. colonial botanists, people in the Philippines, locals who ended up becoming botanists themselves or illustrators or collectors, and there's this feeling, you know, across the source material that there's there is in some way a deference to what they're studying, kind of an awe to what is before them, especially in the Philippine forests, which are so fabled to be lush and incredible and overwhelming with plant forms. And you know, that for for many it's, it's the case, right? And so there is that kind of notion all across that that there is something to be said about how abundant, you know, Philippine plant life can be. 
Um, and it, that it, it almost really escapes people, um, no matter how hard they might try. That said, you know, even if I am kind of looking at these different people's archives, there are different ways you might think of um, one might understand also extraction to play out, right? And so um, collecting plants, just the intensive collecting of plants in certain localities definitely happens under some of these people's um, supervision, right? Um, studying these plants for particular uh, commercial aims and really supporting what would eventually become pretty large commercial pursuits, both under the Spanish and under the U.S. Absolutely, absolutely. And so while I do think that several of the foreign colonial actors I look at really valued plants and respected them to some extent, you know, at least intellectually, it didn't mean that their actions didn't contribute in some way to other forms of really ridding the Philippine environment of, of those plant forms of which they, which they studied. Right. Um, and, you know, I've also been able to look at you know, other historical materials of particular indigenous communities that have also engaged with plant life in different ways, both past and present. So I've had really a fortunate opportunity to um, examine weaving communities in the Southern Philippines and in the Northern Philippines and to understand how these communities really transform plant life into technologies of, of weaving and dyeing. And, you know, there, these, these practices or the practices that I've observed really can kind of run the gamut of how people might engage with plant life. And so for some communities, plants were part of, and they're still part of their origin story, you know, and how they kind of come to become um, a refined people or sophisticated people. You know, plants play a part in that. Um, at the same time, they can be a very utilitarian for particular needs, whether it's trade and the development of certain products that can kind of move through a market space. Absolutely. And even today, you know, um, I was able to work with an anthropologist in the Northern Philippines to talk a little bit about dye bearing plants. And for some of the communities, uh, one in particular that I was able to be exposed to, you know, a lot of the the kind of quote unquote least extractive practices, right? And more natural practices of working, for instance, with indigo plants and sort of fabricating dye from it um, actually requires so much more labor and time, much, much more land, um, almost to the extent that really kind of vast quantities of indigo have to be used to kind of create tiny amounts of dye that can be sold. And for them, you know, they're weighing this against something more synthetic, which is can be fast acting, maybe more resilient, you know, on an actual fabric. And so I find that to also really be kind of fascinating as far as how these indigenous communities are also kind of weighing what it means to um, go back to quote unquote, go back, and I say that in quotes, to, you know, these other forms of um weaving and dyeing practices versus what is even just more efficient for them and perhaps even less damaging over the long term on some of the landscape that needs to be developed to really grow the mass quantities of dye matter that they might need. You know, does respect play a role in that? Absolutely. I would think so. And I think that, you know, it would I would be hard pressed to say that, you know, that they didn't consider plant life around them in a really serious way both past and present. And so I think for myself, when, I, when I'm recalling, you know, what it means for me to respect plant life, 
I think it means that, you know, sometimes even on a very practical level, I really can't throw out a plant if it's, I still notice it's alive. <laughs> I mean, like, you know, maybe this is something that I learned from my dad, but, you know, if there was even a centimeter of green left to a plant that's just been so poorly attended to or, you know, accidentally mistreated, um, he would just not let that plant go. You know, it, it, it's it gotta be revived in some way. And so, you know, you'll, if you ever come to my home, you'll see just these half living um, poor plants sometimes that like I need to try to revive to some extent. And I, you know, one can call that respect. One can call that maybe feeling a little lofty, but I, I do take that from my dad. And I do take seriously the responsibility that it means to kind of uh, raise a plant and to really, really nourish it. And, you know, and it is sometimes pretty unfortunate when a plant might kind of die. And so, um, you know, it, and in, in a very sentimental way that that emerges for me, and I think in my own intellectual work again, I also think that means that to be respectful of plants is to really still write about the environmental impacts and harms that kind of still reverberate through scientific study. Um, and, and then even my own studies and intellectual projects, I think that that's, you know, not, not divorceable. And so like, if I'm to be sort of a scholar that is respectful of the subject that I write about, that means that I also have to reflect on the real environmental consequence that comes out both in my historical subject matter, but then even in my own work. And that is never a pretty process. Um, it's not always easy. And I think it does require kind of an iterative reflection every time I, I think of something new. Another area of interest for folks in the network is education. So many of us are teachers or students or both. And um, I like to ask interviewees, how do you consider yourself? Are you a teacher? Are you a student? And how would you envision education with plants? Like, what would it look like? What are some of the practices that we could have um, in working with plants in education? I do consider myself a lifelong learner. Um, thank goodness I picked a profession where I'm always learning, you know, and in some ways always still feeling like a student. In my career and I guess professional role, I am an instructor um, at a university. And teaching with plants has been enjoyable and sort of experimental. And I think there are ways to do it. And so in my own pedagogy, I've moved from only reading about plants and reading great primary source material or literature on how people talk about plants and how plants emerge or how the environment is discussed to really understanding that the tactile component of engaging with plant life is super, super important to then again, asking interesting questions or thinking about world-making with plants and how we ourselves as humans become more vividly defined, I think, in relation to plant life. And so for a class that I'm going to be teaching in the wintertime, um, which is just this approaching quarter, I'm actually partnering with the Center for Agroecology here at the University of California, Santa Cruz, and I'm planning to have my class over the course of 10 weeks really take several stops to the center to, to grow plant life. Um, you know, right now we're trying to decide if it's going to be something kind of more of economic or um, 
uh, our food importance to Southeast Asia. This is a Southeast Asia plants class or some other kind of local um, plant that can grow quite well in this environment here on the central coast of California. But the real hope around it is to actually get students to get their hands a little bit dirty, to, to think and contemplate with the plant as it grows and what it means as it's growing and how that might even change their own thinking about process and time, most especially, you know, because this is a history class and time is sort of at the forefront of most history classes. Thinking about the time of a plant, you know, might actually allow them to reconsider their own historical writing that they're going to be doing for my class, thinking about, in order to think about, for instance, you know, how a particular plant may shape a historical moment like the development of a plantation or like the development of um, genetic modification to assist in more efficient growing patterns for plants or not, you know, and I think in that process, they may develop, and I, you know, check back with me in about 10 weeks, um, they may develop a different understanding of the material that we're going to be reading. And, and I hope they get something out of being exposed to the Center for Agroecology as well. That sounds like a fabulous um, kind of part of your class. I'm sure it will go well, but I look forward to hearing <laughs> how it ends up, how it ends up going. So thank yeah. you. Are there any recent or current or upcoming projects that you're working on that you're especially excited about? Yes, uh, and this one's still pretty nascent. So as I've alluded to, I'm a historian of science. I work mostly on the plant sciences and botany. But since joining the UCSC campus in 2020, I've been working on a local history project on Filipino Americans in the Pajaro Valley which is here um, in Santa Cruz County and parts of Northern Monterey County. And the history project is dealing with the first Filipino settlers to arrive to the region in the early 20th century. And we work with the descendants um, of that generation of settlers. Many of these descendants are now themselves in their 50s, 60s, 70s, even early 80s. They have wonderful stories of, kind of community formation in the Pajaro Valley, agrarian life. Um, and, and struggle as well. And so I've worked with a really great team of graduate students, faculty, undergraduates, and community members to start to really piece this history together in a robust way. And what I love now is that because we've sort of done a lot of this really good legwork to kind of, one, build a relationship with the community, meet the visions that they had had in their own documentation, and, you know, also sort of have enough of the sort of the empirical primary source material to kind of move forward in the project, we're now really going to start looking towards the Philippines and connecting with the kin of many of our family members here who, um, you know, have memories of those family members who originally migrated out in the early 20th century. And so it's sort of now this kind of bi-coastal project of the Pajaro Valley and mainly the Ilocos region in the northern Philippines, where a lot of our um, community partners come from. And so what's cool about this is for me as the kind of plant person, I am really excited to think about kind of agrarian life in these two different nodes. 
um, farming practices, technologies around agriculture, certain plant life that may have kind of moved in between, um, and how people sort of, again, affectively even engaged with the environment and what those meanings had for them. And these are slowly popping up in some of the material in the way that the, the descendants sort of think about plants and how their own parents sort of cultivated gardens, for instance, or really loved having Filipino, um, what they felt like were Filipino, like uh, vegetables, you know, accessible to them in a faraway place like the central coast of California. And so I think this other Philippines now piece is going to help us sort of put the puzzle together a little bit on what this kind of, again, new world is sort of being developed with these two nodes and possibly through the optic of plant life or the optics of agriculture. Um, it's nascent as you get, and you can tell, um, but this is really exciting me and it's probably going to take, you know, several years to kind of build out, but I do think that it's going to require once more uh, community engaged research in the Northern Philippines relationships with partners out in the Philippines too, and, um, really kind of giving meaning to this community that sort of stayed behind in the Philippines and understanding migration, agriculture, and even kinship in a new way. I can't wait um, to hear more about the project as it develops. And of course, you're always welcome back on the podcast um, as different parts of the project come about, if you'd like to share them with folks. So Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Is there anything else that you'd like to add or that we haven't gotten a chance to talk about? Can I ask you what your favorite plant is? Yeah. No one's, no, <laughs> no one's asked me a question. Um, I think right now I have been gravitating towards ginger a lot. I just finished my PhD. Uh, ginger has been very grounding. Um, I've been drinking a lot of ginger and cooking with a lot of ginger. Um, and I like the lumpy form of ginger and bulbousness of it. It's aesthetically, um, I'm really enjoying connecting with it aesthetically lately. Um, my dissertation included bonsai trees and giant sequoias and tomato plants. So those are also ones that are kind of in the periphery that were once favorite sets of plants. <laughs> now I'm taking a quick, a quick breath away from, um, but yeah. <laughs> Exciting. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I think that's actually, you know, to go back to the pedagogy tip, that is something that I enjoy asking students at the start of a class. If I'm teaching on plants in Southeast Asia, I'll ask them, you know, how do you think plants control you? And they'll say pretty funny responses, um, some heartfelt. And they'll really talk again about these sort of emotional connections that they might have with plants or the associations that they bring. Or like you were pointing out with ginger, the change in state even that it can afford and create for you and for them. And so um, thank you for answering that question. No worries. It is interesting, I think. And I've noticed it as I get as I get older and my body, I it's not that my body is more dependent 
on the environment, but I think I'm more aware of that dependency because of the process of aging. And yeah, I am, I am dependent on ginger <laughs> if I don't have, you know, with all the stress, but also just with like grounding, like I said, it, it is fascinating all of the ways that plants show up in our lives. Sober. Yeah. And, you know, and it just reminds me too, like, I think, um, even for my own students who, you know, on average are between the ages of 18 and 22, some have such an acute sense of what plants mean for them. And I do think there is sort of a role in incorporating plants into our classes because it not only creates sort of a level of environmental consciousness, it does also allow for students to think more broadly and deeply about what a plant does for their own lives and vice versa and what you know responsible actions can mean for even something as small as like a house plant or something as far reaching as an agricultural field that's nearby and so it's cool to hear you say that about your own experiences and i have hope too that even younger generations are developing that sensitivity too or recognizing that sensitivity if people want to follow your work, um, where should they find you? Sadly, I don't have social media. <laughs> but So I'm unfollowable in that sense. Uh, but I do have a faculty webpage uh, with the Department of History at the University of California, Santa Cruz, where I am. And so um, just a small sampling of my work can be found there. And I can definitely be reached at any time should anyone have any questions. Well, thank you so much again, Kat, for joining us on the podcast. Again, you're welcome back anytime. It's just been such a delight to connect with you and learn more about your research. Thank you for having me, Kate. I really appreciate it. So if you are interested in learning more about networking with plants in the Anthropocene, feel free to check out our website, networkingwithplants.org, or you can reach us via email at networkingwithplants at gmail.com. Until next time, think about some of your favorite plants. Take care. music piece is kindly offered to us by artist Mylise. Mylise is a sonic artist, immersive ecology designer, and clean energy ambassador. Merging art and technology, she creates music experiences that express the voices of plants and the other inhabitants of the earth.